Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the gleaming, streamlined studios of Outlaw Radio, this is True Crime Uncensored with the sequestered Burl Bear. <laughs> I'm Mark Hoyer, your fact checker. Today's program is produced with much indifference and great reluctance <laughs> by Magic Matt Allen of the Outlaw Radio Network. You, you pegged Matt Allen perfectly. <laughs> we have Christian Barth. But tell you what, for those people who didn't hear the show last week and are not aware of the Garden State Parkway murders, can you just give us a real quick, you know, summation to bring them up to speed? Sure. So May, uh, May 30th, 1969, at about 04.30 a.m., Susan Davis and Elizabeth Perry, who were close friends from Monticello College in Illinois, which is now defunct, um, took a road trip back east. Um, the plans were to go to Ocean City, New Jersey, and stay at a boarding house down there on 9th Street, owned by Walter Sybin. It's called the Sybin House. Um, they went down there together. They stayed there, and on the morning of May 30th, 1969, Memorial Day, got up to leave with intentions of going to Susan's parents' house in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and from there down to Duke University to see Susan's older brother graduate from college. They got up to leave, said goodbye to their landlords very early. The landlord did dissuade them from going, sort of prophetic, um, because it was such an early hour. They left. They were next seen about a mile away across the bridge uh, at Summers Point, New Jersey, Diner. Um, they were seen in there, talked to three boys, sat down to eat. They came in there at sometime around 6 o'clock, um, probably I'd say earlier, 529. I'll say 530 because I know the sun rose at 529. They were seen leaving about 6.15 uh, over thereabouts. Didn't stay very long. It was a very, very crowded diner, just as you said. Um, and they were last seen uh, not leaving the diner, but, but sitting in the diner. So they got up to left, got in Susan's car, which was a 1966 Chevrolet Impala convertible. Mm. Um, they drove approximately two miles, and their car was found... Abandoned on the side of the road, um, their mile marker 31.9, actually between 31.8 and 31.9. Um, sadly, their bodies were found three days later. Um, both had been uh, knifed to death and left in the condition what appears to be the work of, if not a serial killer, definitely a, um, you know, a sexual deviant of some sort. Yeah, that pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? Exactly. And to this day, no one has been arrested, nor has the case been officially closed. That's correct. But then again, uh, the Cole Brown Simpson case is one that has never been closed, and a lot of people think they know who did it. <laughs> that, that's true. That is, that is yeah. true. A lot of a lot of people have their opinions on this case. I've talked to about every living detective. Um, in preparation for my book, The Garden State Parkway Murders. Um, most of them would talk to me. Um, the present-day state police, um, they're prohibited from talking at any, any really length, any degree about it. So I relied mostly upon my research. Um, again, wait, 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 wait
why are the current law enforcement personnel forbidden to talk about the case? Because it's a, even though it is a cold case, 51, 52 years old, they are forbidden from talking about it because it's called still considered an open investigation, even right. though it's allegedly inactive and in the cold case status. They cannot talk about it. I would love to see at what time this becomes practically... Uh, impossible to deny people access because look at the Lindbergh baby kidnapping and so forth. These 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 cases can go so far back, um, but that that's the reason why uh, it's there's exceptions. It because yeah. the cold case, it becomes flash frozen. Frozen. Uh, I don't think this is as frozen as people think it is. I think it requires maybe collectively our forces to jar it back open. I, w I wouldn't call it frozen. I'd say it's, it's somewhere warm and thawing, if you will. Well, that's good, because we've had other cases where it's been cold or almost uh, frozen to the point of completely forgotten, and then you'll get a couple of new detectives will stumble in, take a look at it and say, hey, let's apply some new techniques, some fresh eyes and new technology to this and see what happens, and uh, well, I'm familiar with one 25 years later. They arrested the, the, the real people who did it. But it took 25 years. Or 30 well, years in some cases. Yeah, the reason, one of the reasons I do shows like True Crime Uncentered is because I, I really believe that the more people talk about it, the more we can bring some focus back on it, get some publicity, and obviously at least exert some sort of influence on the authorities to review it in light of the revelations I set forth in, in my book. Okay, now speaking of the revelations set forth in the book uh, and the opinions of uh, people who are familiar with the case, and of course you get a lot of really opinionated people who aren't familiar with it. <laughs> it with any situation. People who form opinions without information. I always find that fascinating. But what uh, in the current situation, where you have these uh, these two women, young ladies who've been murdered, the car found somewhere, the body's found somewhere else. One has her purse, the other doesn't. There's a lot of questions to be answered. Who who are or who were, if there was any identities known, prime suspects or subprime suspects? When you say subprime suspects, I really like that term. It's the first time I've heard that. Um, it up. <laughs> I say there are a number of persons of interest. Just to go back into the chronology, um, the first person they uh, in this revelation came out uh, about five days after the initial storm of publicity in, in the, the local papers, and additionally, the New York Times actually covered it. As well as the Inquirer, the Atlantic, the Philadelphia Inquirer, that is, the Atlantic City Press, the Courier Post. Um, they really, uh, they, they interviewed a bunch of people, and about five days into it, they got a tip um, from a storekeeper over in Philadelphia that a kid had come into the store and was allegedly overheard talking to a couple of girls saying that he was in Ocean City at the time of the murders and that he had known who'd done it. Not know who'd done it, I'm sorry, but he had, he had been there and known the girls. So the police in Philadelphia, who didn't have jurisdiction, but nevertheless decided to pay a visit to our friend, found him near a bus terminal, brought him in for an extensive round of questioning that went into the night and eventually uh, involved the New Jersey State Police, two detectives um, from there, Mr. Detective Hart. Um, and Detective Patterson, and uh, they really, really, uh, you know, 
bill this person extensively. His identity wasn't uh, revealed at that time. I found out uh, through a, a loose piece of paper that was at a public repository, forwarded into other papers, that his name was actually Mark Thomas. Mark Thomas um, had a very interesting life. Uh, presumably he's still alive. I spoke to him. He was alive when I talked to him several years ago. He actually... Um, was never really cleared specifically as a, as a person of interest in this case because he gave sort of unclear answers to the lie detector test and allegedly wasn't able to provide an alibi that satisfied police enough that they officially release him. Um, not release him, but, but clear him. He was eventually mm -hmm. released, um, and uh, he went on. A, from there, he went to Canada, um, by way of Fort Bragg, North Carolina, where he went AWOL, uh, then went up to Canada, returned to the States sometime in the 70s. And it wasn't until about the early to mid-1980s that he began involved heavily with the Ku Klux Klan. Oh, boy. Yeah, he became head of the Pennsylvania Ku Klux Klan and was later appointed national chaplain of the um, national Ku Klux Klan. So he really had a really dynamic career. Really, he did, and what was amazing to him, and from there, he went on to form a group, uh, or became part of a group that was, or started a group, I should say, called the Midwest Bank Robbers, and it was a group of miscreants that would go to different, that robbed different banks in the Midwest, wearing uh, presidential masks similar to the movie with uh, Patrick Swayze called Point Break, would right. rob these banks and take the cash proceeds and funnel them back to Mark Thomas's farm. He had a racist farm in Pennsylvania where he would have these gatherings that through the 90s really began to attract the attention of a lot of national um, you know, civil rights groups. Uh, so yeah, I would imagine so. They got a little alarm bell going off when you got Ku Klux Klans with Robert Banks to yeah. finance the racist activities. It was fascinating. Eventually, in the late 1990s, he um, he uh, there was another group that he was a part of called the Aryan Republican Army. And he was a member of this, and several of these uh, Midwest bank robbers, as they were they were denoted in the newspaper, were part of the Aryan Republican Army as was Mr. Thomas, and eventually one of them got arrested, and he sang like a bird, ratted out several of the others, and Mark Thomas wound up uh, basically turning himself into the FBI who were about to raid his compound in a very highly publicized thing with the local news, uh, CBS, way, way back when. Took him there, he copped a plea, did about eight years in Fort Dix Federal. Now what's fascinating about this is I uncovered that during this time period, this whole manner of the, the, the Parkway murders, um, uh, he sort of led to shadow, it was his past, and the authorities would periodically remind him that they had him, you know, on, that he was on their radar all along. In one such instance, I talked to a head of the Pennsylvania State Police, kind of Captain John McGeehan, who's no longer with us, and he recalled for me a story where there was a post office worker that was actually a Pennsylvania or a New Jersey, I think it was a Pennsylvania in, um, a police officer who went in undercover and delivered a birthday card to Mr. Thomas at his compound. And they had a pair of high, you know, focused binoculars and watched his expression as he opened the letter. And it was actually a birthday card 
from Susan and Elizabeth. Oh. Yeah, just to see his reaction. And apparently he was, he was aghast and went back into the house in one of his outbuildings. So the thing that really struck me is, is odd is, um, well, first of all, and I'd love to get your guys' take on this, is that how a person, now he has always been a primary person of interest in this case, um, how a person goes ahead and, and, and if he had done this, how does a person who, who, who kills a person and, and two women in such a manner, knowing that's in his past, okay, how does he go on to willingly thrust himself into the public life in such a capacity, drawing attention to himself, where authorities, the New Jersey State Police and FBI, are well aware of his connection to the Garden State Parkway murders investigation. That has always struck me as certainly something rational. Not rational, <coughs> well, not rational <coughs> but he's a very, very bright guy. I, I talked to him several years ago, and I've always had trouble uh, wrapping my head around the fact that, that someone with really no history of violence um, could go ahead and, and do something like that and then go ahead and lead that sort of life if he had done such a thing. So I think that certainly speaks to the argument that, that Mark, you know, was, was innocent in these in these things, but it certainly is a strange, strange connection. Yeah, I'm going to ask the question: Were these two girls were they Catholic or Jewish? Either one. Yeah, I don't. I would I would gather they were they were Methodist. Okay, well that that I mean, you always got to have motive, means, and opportunity. Uh, and we don't we don't know for sure about the sexual angle because in those days, first of all, they washed all the bodies before they did autopsies, uh, so we wouldn't know if they've been sexually violated or not. Because that was a situation uh, with other cases around that same time period. However, if they weren't Catholic, so they weren't Jews, there was no racial hatred or anti-Semitic or anti-religious things that Klan members or people of that stripe uh, tend to bunch to the, what's it called, the, the international conspiracy of Jews, Catholics, and quote, the subhuman army of blacks. Well, being as they weren't black and they weren't Jewish and they weren't Catholic, that rules out any of that type of motivation. So, no wonder he gasped when he got that bogus letter. I figured something really was weird. Yeah. Now, uh, okay, there's so also one, one uh, primary, shall we say, very visible red herring. Uh, <laughs> not that he was a red, mind you, but there's something fishy about that. Let's move on. Who else is a primary person of interest? Uh, another primary person of interest um, was a guy named Ronnie Walden. Ronnie Walden was a Georgia drifter who had met a woman um, from Hamilton, New Jersey, somewhat nearby Ocean City, but when they were down in spring break in Fort Lauderdale in the spring of 69, this person told the police that she had seen Ronnie wear a particular type of watch, uh, a sea diving watch typically worn by... Um, not necessarily divers, but surfers and the like, and also worn by um, soldiers, uh, troops in Vietnam, specifically the Mekong Delta, according to a watch expert I had spoken with who repaired over a thousand watches and served um, with the military in Vietnam. So this person had identified this watch as belonging to a guy because she sat next to him in Fort Lauderdale when she saw him wear it. And a few weeks later, when she returned from Fort Lauderdale, 
this guy, Ronnie, had actually driven up from Florida and arrived at her place of work because he was interested in a woman that was friends with this witness. This witness went outside to show Ronnie where to park in Atlantic City, um, somewhere along Texas and Pacific Avenues. It was a Social Security office where she worked, and she said that as she was showing him where to park, he just had one of these strange, maniacal eruptions where he completely freaked out, and she said a knife slid out from under the bottom of his car. Um, the, the passenger seat, and he just sort of, you know, the, the, these things tended to add up, and uh, she notified the police, of course, of this, and commensurate um, with her belief that he had done this and with her conversations with the New Jersey State Police and discussing Ronnie, she went ahead and compiled some handwritten notes, which she faxed to me several years ago. Um, one of the notes she had taken uh, indicated that the police had told her that they were 99 and 44 100 percent. <laughs> yeah, remember that, that Ronnie had... Yeah, Ivory Snow. And that uh, they had, oh. Yeah, and that they had um, found a half a finger, fingerprint of his. Um, ultimately, and I, I found this so fascinating, um, uh, they were finally able, based upon this witness, uh, you know, t not testimony, this wasn't given under oath, but based upon a statement, yeah. they were able to find Ronnie uh, out in Colorado, and there was already an APB on him and so forth, and they went out to the jail in Colorado, this New Jersey State Police did, and Ronnie, now the newspapers indicated incorrectly that he tried to hang himself after they came to see him, but it was actually a few hours beforehand when he tried to hang himself in his cell, um, in the very same cell where Ted Bundy, who would later become a Garden State Parker murder suspect, escaped through the ceiling um, and then went ahead and um, and murdered four co-eds at Florida State University, sadly. So but the, the coincidences of something like that, some tiny cell in sort of a country jail that has since been raised or, or redone, the fact that these, these two members, these two people, you know, Walden and both suspects in the Garden State Parkway murders, Walden and Bundy, occupied the same cell. One tried to kill himself there, the other one tried it, or did successfully escape absolutely fascinates me. I don't mm. I don't know that you can make stuff up like that. No, but it makes, you know, it's just that crossroad of a million lives. There's only so many people out of a population that are going to be murderers. Right. You know, that are crimes of passion, that are crimes of sexual motivation or psychological disarrangement. It's a yeah. very, very small percentage. So if you take that very small percentage and there is a case in a certain geographical area and there's going to be at least one or perhaps two people who fit that just deranged psychological profile potentially. It's not that strange they'd wind up in the same holding cell eventually. Hmm. Interesting. You just got to, it's like it's the wildest, you know, uh, six degrees of separation case in the world. Uh, it's more like, well, that makes sense. You know, it's like, why are there so many prisoners in prisons? Is it a coincidence? No. no. It's funny, yeah. <laughs> I, actually, I actually titled one of my chapters, The Six Degrees of Ted Bundy. I believe I did, at least. And, uh, yeah, because I, I was in those. <laughs> I might your book, My Next Door Neighbor of Walla Walla was Ted Bundy's roommate. Oh, <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, it's a small world, after all. 
So Ronnie, it uh, also police learned, had uh, done a stint in the Milledgeville, Georgia State Hospital for schizophrenia. So he had his mental issues as well. Um, so you know, he he was he was another suspect, of course. And then we had um, a guy named Gerald Stano. Gerald was uh, born under very unfortunate circumstances. I want to say his mother was a streetwalker at the time up in Rochester, New York, um, terribly abused as a boy, put up for adoption. And um, the Stano, Mr. Stano and his wife Norma decided to adopt this kid despite um, really fervent recommendations against it from a local Schenectady adoption agency um, based upon what had happened. I mean, he had been eating his own feces, he was malnourished, yeah. terrible stuff. But they, they adopted him and brother Roger. And these boys, they, I, they took, and, and they, at the time he was living in Pennsylvania, um, one mile from Mark Thomas. So you had this, again, the six degrees of separation. Gerald Stano and his younger brother were juvenile delinquents. Um, in 1982, I want to say, being 80 and 82, um, uh, Mr. Stano has, was confessing to a number of crimes down in Florida. He was determined to be a serial killer, 30 women. Uh, he picked up prostitutes, but he also picked up college girls, and he picked them up in his car, is what he did. And he would take them places and then go ahead and murder them, typically at knife point. So that's how he got involved, and he signed a confession to the Garden State Parkway murders. Um, uh, I guess it was in 1982, um, but ultimately the New Jersey State Police went down to question him about this, and they left unconvinced that he had done these murders. Um, I'm not certain that they knew of the proximity between him and Mark Thomas at the time, nor did they know what I found out was that the, you know, the New Jersey State Police had, in fact, According to the Pennsylvania, Whitping Township, Pennsylvania State Police, who were investigating Mark Toms because he was in their jurisdiction, um, that in fact uh, Roger, the younger brother who since deceased, was down allegedly with Mark Thomas in Ocean City at the time uh, of the murders, and that they had uh, had interested him as a suspect. So it's let me back up here a second. Uh, yeah. When they went down and they interviewed uh, Mr. Stanos yep. or any of these other people, one of the first questions the cops are going to ask is, why are the girls' car at the side of the road, why are their bodies all the way over here? Yeah. What's the answer? Yeah, I will. Did he I ask any of those guys? Did he ask them that question? No. What, a question he did ask them, and I uncovered this as well. He, a, he and another, I think his name was Lehman, Detective Lehman and Detective Paul Crow of the Daytona Beach Police Department. I uncovered a transcript. I think it was part of an appendix to a, um, you know, a death row appellate court brief down in Florida when, when, uh, when Stana was in death row. And he sort of, the, the detective was sort of intimidating um, uh, Gerald. And so Gerald, you know, We've got these cops up there, these state police in New Jersey that are itching to come down here and see you. And they think you killed some girls up there, too. And Gerald said, Gerald was very intimidated. He said, oh, no, oh, no. He's like, yeah, it was interesting. He called, <laughs> he, 
He characterized the police as a bunch of meat-ass Polacks. Oh, these guys, oh okay. yeah, these guys are coming down to see you, and they, they here's where it's interesting, bro. The transcript reads, yeah, they're, they're coming down, um, there were these two girls, and it's interesting, one of the girls was tied up, obviously referring to Susan and Elizabeth, which is different sort of style. And when he posed these things, these questions to Gerald and sort of scared him into saying the police were coming down there, Gerald never once said, what are you talking about? What do you mean? He was scared and said, oh, they're coming? Why? I hope they don't. Um, so that, would, to me, was very, very telling about him. I think he, you know, I'm very, very uh, certain that, that I don't have, again, the extent that I'm able to conjecture I wouldn't be surprised if, if Gerald was somehow had his had his fingers in this as well, given his past and the fact that he was living in Pennsylvania in 1969 and admitted to the murders years later. Uh, I always found that that connection was, was fascinating. I think he is definitely worthy of uh, a more... Well, the it still seems to be that, I mean... I'm not a law enforcement personnel, nor do I pretend to be one. I just write true crime books. But it seems to me one of the first things that any law enforcement person would ask would be details of the crime to see if the person knows things only the perpetrator would know, right. and not just the stuff that's put out in the media. Right. That's why they always hold something back. So if the guy says, oh, yeah, well, one girl's purse was there and the other girl's wasn't, and nobody knows that except the killer, that's a good indication you got somebody. But when you got a car by the side of the road, yeah, with well, one person in, one purse stop, body found two miles away, whatever the hell it is, that's when you want to ask, tell me, you know, the car at the side of the road. Where did you see? What was the last time you saw the girl? You know, five. The guy confesses. He's going to tell you how he did it. Right. And but so the thing is, did he say I, how he did it? How? Why this girl's car was at the side of the road? All, all he said was, and the uh, detective Crow did read me the confession over the phone, and I'm, I'm speaking just at the top of my head. You're thinking. He said words to the effect that it was 1972 or 73. It was the Atlantic City Expressway, two girls in a sport top convertible. That's what he mm -hmm. said, and then, and then signed it. And I said to the detective, well, he's off on his dates. Okay, it's 1969 versus 72 or 73. It was the Parkway, not the Expressway. And he said there's, there's you know, things about Stanley. He was always off in time and place, but when it came to the specifics of crimes, he always seemed to remember them. I talked to another detective who had worked with Stano. And granted, there were many people that thought a lot of his confessions were completely bogus and that he was coerced into making them and he wasn't one mm -hmm. of the brightest guy. But I did talk to another guy who said, listen, I'm convinced this guy killed every girl he ever said he did. So it goes back to, look, I, I just think that Gerald Stano needs to be further investigated in his, in his connection with this based upon... Um, just, just a combination of circumstances that we discussed. Well, I can understand the thing about the years. I was just asked yesterday on a Facebook page about for disc jockeys, you know, what was your first radio gig? What year was it? How old were you? Well, I'm right. in my 70s now, despite my youthful charm and appearance. Uh, and I go, well, what year was that? 
I remember it. I know the radio station. Remember all the details, the Black Widow spiders, everything else. But I don't know. I'd have to go look at calendar. Then after this, after that, I don't know. 62, 63. I guess it was 15. But maybe if you look up the, the years of my age, maybe I'm off by a year or two. You know. And, and if you had murdered 30, 30 some women. It would pretty much be difficult to keep Oh, yeah, I'd have to keep, it, you know, have to keep charts and graphs, yeah, you know. Yeah, uh, So. And if you're poor on names, you know, you'd have to... You know, this is like a woman I know, this is going to be real strange, who recognizes men not by their face but by their genitals. <laughs> <laughs> wow. She can be with someone that she really likes and not know it's him until she sees his genitals. Oh, hi, but it's so good to see you again. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that uh, may sound peculiar, but that's the way her brain works. She doesn't right. have facial recognition software. No, she has you know, dick right? recognition software. Yeah, she does. <laughs> and, and to her, that's just as normal as facial recognition software as anybody else. Right. right. So, uh, you know, just because there is one particular method or methodology of, of how a brain works or how a thought process works, we know enough from the studies of axiology that it's not true, that there's more than one thought system in the world, uh, it's, and it's not universal. It varies greatly from culture to culture and gender to gender. So just because someone thinks a certain way, or you and all your friends think a certain way, doesn't mean that this gentleman's thought process is the same as yours. Well, it's also, it's interesting, it, it sort of, it sort of um, brings to, to my memory that the first day in law school, or in criminal law, they always do this this test on you, and what they'll do is you'll be sitting there listening to the listening to the professor introduce the class, and you know halfway through the class, a guy comes in, and I fell for it. A guy comes into the class, walks right on in, um, walks up to the lectern, and takes the professor's purse and runs out. So this happens. So a bunch of guys tackle him, and he says, "Get out!" I'm just joking. This is part of it. And the professor calls him off and says, "Okay, I'm, it was a kid, it was a student, it was all, it was all a prank." And she gets to the class and says, "Okay, what was this guy wearing? What was, what did he have on?" And it was all about the fallacy of human memory and witness identification. Mm -hmm. We're very imperfect. We think we know something. We convince ourselves we know something when, in, in fact, we don't. So it just really goes to the larger picture of the, the fallacies of memory and the human mind. You know, what do you remember? When it's 72 or 73, how does this guy know, right? I mean, he was in, obviously in the area, and his younger brother with whom he lived was allegedly questioned by the state police for being down there in Ocean City at the time of the murders. So... Mm -hmm. It's it's fascinating. It's not like he, he he pulled this completely out of nowhere. There is a connection, Earl. There is a mm. connection, and that's what I researched, and that's what I want people to know. People are very quick to dismiss someone based for several reasons, I think, and I especially, I know we're going to get into Bundy, but I especially see it with the Bundy thing and, and his, his connection. It couldn't have been Bundy because Bundy would only take women and club them over the head and he was necrophiliac, yada, yada. It couldn't have been him. Yeah, they fail to account for the other things that I've uncovered that these people were in the area. Now that they were at the Jersey Shore, that their, or that their brother was at the Jersey Shore, and the New Jersey State Police questioned him in 1969. So the things that I know it's not direct evidence, but it does tend to add up. And 
I think oftentimes people are so quick to dismiss that because they form their own opinions or in the case of these alleged blogging experts out there, you know, they've already written so extensively about information that's later questioned or turned out to be untrue that they're just too prideful. But they've already got too much emotion invested in it. Yeah, exactly. exactly. You know, that, there lies the problem. The process of consultation, ladies and gentlemen, and future law enforcement people and defense attorneys, or whatever, is if you form your opinion first, you're screwed. Yeah. <laughs> what you have to do is first you acquire data, information, absolute factual information. Find the principle, whether it's a moral principle, spiritual principle, ethical, legal, whatever, and apply that to the basic factual evidence to determine your course of action. If you determine your course of action first and try to bend the universe to match your opinion, you're always going to get screwed up. And that's why you get a lot of, uh, you know, where police lock it on someone and decide they know who did it, whether the person did or not, refuse to look at any other, you know, possible suspects. You get a lot of innocent people in prison or dead. Yeah. I actually, I actually, you, you sound like a judge giving jury instruction. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope they're good instructions. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, what, there was such a, such a person within the New Jersey State Police, a guy named Jack Kreps. Jack Jack was this six foot six inch, two hundred fifty pound, garrulous man, dirty Harry type, who was first on the investigation. And this guy swore up and down, um, to me at least, that he felt that it was it was Mr. Thomas. And more I sort of gave him, you know, things to consider and, and evidence to the contrary, specifically his whole connection with the, you know, the Aryans and his no history of violence. He sort of backed off his position, um, mm -hmm. but he was dogged in his first several days. I mean, this guy went into a restaurant where uh, Mark's, Mark and his father would hang out. Mark dropped out of school in like eighth or ninth grade and would play pool. At a, at a place called the, uh, it was someone in the Skipback Pike in, in um, eastern Pennsylvania, Montgomery County. He'd play pool at this place, and, and Jack would go in there and just sit there like the first Dirty Harry um, when Clint would, would just Harry Callahan would go and stalk that guy. And he did the same thing, and actually, <laughs> the father came over and said, you're harassing my son, and Jack's words were, well, I guess you're going to have to prove that. And he wound up getting a protective order against Jack Kreps, who was then, uh, I don't want to say taken off the investigation, but he had to stay on the New Jersey side. He just got so wrapped up in his own opinion, um, and, and, and that was who he believed did this, that sort of altered his thinking, and it sort of goes to what you were saying about the emotions and forming an opinion first out and, and really not considering you know, other data, as you would call it. Yeah, it's, it's problematic. And I'll tell you, what people, you talk about, well, this isn't the modus operandi of, of this particular uh, serial killer. I've got to take what I call reverse engineering. <laughs> and that is, if I could give you an example here, and then you can apply it to the case we're talking about. Robert Lee Yates, the Spokane serial killer, uh, pick up women, get in the car, have them uh, go down on him. And if after seven minutes, if he hadn't uh, had an orgasm, while they're still uh, performing oral sex on him, he shoots them behind the ear with a twenty-two. Uh, shoots them in the head, but immediately puts a uh, paper towel on the wound to stop some of the blood. Of course, they're dead, so it's not pumping too much. Then uh, puts a plastic bag over their head to make sure there's no more blood, and then I guess he uh, has an orgasm or something. But if you look, look 
at his very first victims. That's not how it was done. It was a learned process of what works. The very first people he killed, he did with a three fifty seven Magnum and almost blew his dick off, right? Right. So he quickly learned from that first one, no, that's not what you do. You don't use a three fifty seven Magnum if the girl's head's in your lap, right? Right. But to look at, say, look at, at his very first homicides, and then look at his modus operandi for all the other years afterwards, and say it doesn't fit, so it couldn't be him. Right. Is backwards. Yeah. Because like anything else, it's a learning curve. You learn what works, what doesn't work, and you learn your preferences. And a serial killer always simply is doing the same play over and over, just recasting <coughs> the uh, the people in the uh, in the roles. Mm, it's characters. the same play. Yeah. You know, the individual is irrelevant. It's just do they you know do they pass the audition? Yeah. <laughs> and then and then you do them. Uh, in Yates's case, the first one he did was the last one he did like that, right? Because he did everything. He was he figured out? Well, this doesn't work, you know. Right. Next time I do it, I'm going to do this instead. And well, then he came up on his modus operandi. You say that because the next person of interest, um, his name arose uh, in the winter of 1989, and that's of course Ted Bundy. So Ted Bundy. Uh, is right after he died, and I think it was January 23rd or January 24th, 1989, this a psychologist named Art Norman from Portland, Oregon, contacted the Atlanta County Prosecutor's Office as well as the newspapers and said um, in 1986 when Bundy was on death row and managed to get a stay. He was close to dying back then. Um, I interviewed this, this Bundy, and Bundy was speaking in the third person, and he said words to the effect of, well... He was at a place called the Jersey Shore. He didn't have much to do. It was 1969, and he wound up meeting a couple of girls on the beach, and it wound up being the first time that he did it. Close quote. Now, he never said what he meant by did it, and I thought that was always fascinating. Um, and then right, the, the, compare that to another interview. The second-to-last interview Bundy would give was to Dorothy Lewis, a psychiatrist, and once again, in very similar circumstances, giving, given free reign to discuss whatever he wanted to, he immediately delved into the Jersey Shore, and he said it was 1969, I was down there, didn't have much to do, and I was stalking around the downtown area, the boardwalk area of this resort community, and he said it wound up being the first time I tried to abduct a woman, and the process scared me so much. It was just very, very difficult for me. It was very taboo, I think is the word he used. But he sought to distinguish um, that from what he said was his first killings, but he never really came out and said he didn't do it. I always thought that was interesting how he threw that out there. And in two separate circumstances, again, pulled this out of his head. And then, uh, so again, what we were saying earlier about the naysayers, it couldn't have been Bondi, it couldn't have been Bondi, I'm not buying it. Well, what they don't know, and then I also found out, was that, you know, Bundy's had a, not Bundy's, it was his name was Bundy, but not the family to Bundy's, but Ted's um, grandparents on his mother's side had a house. 
in Ocean City, New Jersey, on 26th Street, according to the aunt that I interviewed. And mm -hmm. she also said that they had been down there several times over the years. So now this just adds Burl another layer of circumstantial evidence. Bundy didn't say that during the interview. I found it out later, but it's certainly not inconsistent with anything he said. So I just found that very fascinating that he, he must have been speaking from a place of truth. wasn't completely made up because he said it on two separate occasions. And, again, I was the first to write about the fact that the family did have a place down here. So he could have been here and he could have stayed there. So yeah, you're right. You know, um, it's, just, it's just, again, people just don't want to seem to, to consider that, that everywhere because they've already decided that his first murders were in 1974 in Seattle. That isn't necessarily so. How old would he have been then? 22. That makes he was, sense. He was 22 when he was staying with his aunt in Philadelphia, outside of Philadelphia, in a town called Lafayette Hill, which was about four miles from where Mark Thomas lived and from where um, Gerald Stano lived. So you had this sort of Bermuda Triangle of persons of interest living that near one another. I still keep, I keep coming back to what seems to me one of the most basic investigative questions is, why is the car at the side of the road on the freeway? Well, the car was on the side, I know. Well, that was, that's what we don't know. One of two things happened, okay? They were taken out of, uh, you know, the, after they got in the circle, they picked up a hitchhiker or... Uh, they drove the car themselves, and someone, through whatever means necessary, um, you know, got them to pull over to the side of the road, and you know, and they were murdered either singularly or together at once. But, but that's what happened. Well, so, that many people at the diner, right? The diner was full. Yeah. The car is two miles away, right? Yep. And that's on a major thoroughfare. I mean, we're talking about you know a highway. Yeah. That means there's cars going by all the time. Yeah. Right? Yep. Well, how did they get from the car to wherever the hell the bodies were? Bodies were 200 feet in from where the car was. So he got these people, to these two girls, to go into the, the woods, murder them, and then stop to bind the bra into one of their hairs, strip one of them, they take the underwear from the other one, leave her expensive jewelry, take the keys, get back in the car, and drive off. He does this, car. Yeah, uh, well, whatever car he was driving, I'm, I'm presuming based on the evidence that it was a car. Again, and like we discussed last time, all this while three boys were asleep in a car about 50 yards behind him and didn't hear a thing when the girls were murdered and they all passed by detector tests. Well, yeah, unless it was a chase or an assault, uh, you could have quieted them down real fast. Yeah. You know, murders don't have to be noisy. Yeah. Especially if there's a stealthy activity involved. Exactly. Or if it's the first time there's going to be uh, well, on first time, either you're going to have a real sloppy or you're going to have overcompensation. Right. Where they really make sure, because they're worried about everything, that, you know, they don't become sloppy until they get criminal pride, until they think it's, it's them that's invincible and not the fact that they were so good at covering their tracks. Right. Or in Bundy's case, where uh, he want, both simultaneously wanted to escape and wanted to get caught. Yes.
Um, so, I mean, again, and, and cover the bodies as well. This is all done at about 6.30 in the morning or 6.15, depending on, you know, who, how you align that with the coroner's estimate um, and two miles. So whoever did this obviously had done this before, okay, or had, you know, the, the, to, to accost two women and murder them in such a fashion and then take the time to afterward make, do the gratuitous act of tying a bra into one of their hair. Um, certainly would be indicative of, of a serial killer, I would think. But again, the other the other facts suggest that it wouldn't be because a serial killer allegedly wouldn't pull over in front of a bunch of boys parked on the side of the road. Whether right, was it was the first time, I didn't know any better. Yeah, I don't. It's it's just incredible, incredible that he. Yeah, does. and I don't see the the fact that that uh, uses the the you know the sexual stuff indication of maybe a future serial killer, but it just shows that it's a, uh, a lust a lust killer, a lust murderer. Yes. Which doesn't necessarily mean serial killer. It can be a lust murderer. Uh, maybe it does become a hobby, but uh, the first time you're not a serial killer yet. Right. I mean, everybody starts somewhere. Exactly. You know? I mean, just because you have sex the first time doesn't mean you're a nymphomaniac yet. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so... So, anyway, so I actually have a question someone had posed to me. I, I promised uh -huh. I would read it on Facebook. Says, Tell us more about the first book on the case, The Origins of Infamy, and why did you write about the case as a work of fiction first before writing this nonfiction true crime book? And do you think it's more likely that the killer attacked him by foot through the woods, or did the killer come and go by a vehicle on the parkway, even if it was a hitchhiker? Thanks from the FB Murder Women. So, yeah, I mean, if you read my book in the Garden State Parkway Murders, I delve in detail into all these particular theories, um, you know, considering, of course, the, 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 the locale where this occurred near the crime scene, which is both very rural yet uh, a suburb, uh, you know, within walking distance of there, again, next to a highway. So, uh, again, I've always stood by the position that whoever did this did it with a car. I think that's the only means by which they could have done it and gotten away because if they had been on foot, I think someone would have seen them. Um, you know, at 6 o'clock, 6.30 in the morning, people aren't just, you know, rambling about after they murder someone and going through neighborhoods. It wasn't Summers Point, the party town we had discussed at this point. You're two miles away into Egg Harbor Township is where the suburbs are, where people, you know, are sleeping. And to see someone just, again, ambling about after killing a person, I imagine they would be in a furtive state. Would, would suggest that, that that person at least would um, bring bring the, bring themselves to the attention of you know someone who was walking a dog and and maybe would give um, uh, a composite of what they'd seen to the police. But the person that the police described was based upon people driving by the parked car, Susan's parked car, and allegedly seeing you know this particular person on the side of the road next to the parked car, not anyone walking through you know a neighboring suburb. Hmm. You know, it's, it's an interesting point. Uh, I used to live in Muckleteal, Washington. Muckleteal, Washington has uh, only about two streets 
that actually go through the town of Buckleteal. All the residential streets are cul-de-sacs. I didn't know that. <laughs> so I leave home and uh, I'm going for a walk. And I'm trying to walk to the main thoroughfare. And I keep trying to go on residential streets. And of course, they're all cul-de-sacs. So I'm not getting anywhere. Right, it's driving me crazy. After a while, a police car pulls up. And they think that perhaps I'm senile and have Alzheimer's and I'm lost wandering around these residential areas. Well, I knew where I wanted to go. I just couldn't get there. Right. But you're right. Someone in a suburban area like that, if someone is wandering around, it appears to not know where they are. Someone's going to be concerned. Not that they're a, a furtive, just murdered somebody person, but rather that they're disoriented or, or uh, there's something wrong with them or they're not well and they need help. You know. Yeah. Um, so there, there were a lot of there were some strange characters about in the area. Don't, don't get me wrong. I actually interviewed a, a guy on whose land this took place, or it was his father's at the time. In fact, um, he was the one who who directed me to the exact location where this is occur had occurred. And I had thought for a number of years that it was it was a spot nearby. But he told me stories that you know there were uh, his father would never open the door. If anyone came by, they lived in a house or near the parkway. His father would never open the door um, when this, after this, this murder took place on his property. In fact, a lot of the locals were really, uh, their, their views changed towards strangers after this happened. Um, but he said that you know, he would never allow them to use the phone or the case may be. But due to the proximity of the parkway in this house, he said there were a lot of strangers um, strange people that that would walk around, but I still believe that if someone was again walking through the yard at that yard at that hour of the day um, at six thirty, he'd be noticed. Which brings me to um, another interesting facet of the case was that in 1983, after reading um, an article in the Philadelphia Inquirer about Gerald Stano confessing to the Parkway murders, a junk dealer came forth to tell um, police, he was in a barbershop actually, talking, I guess, as men do in barbershops, that he saw someone the morning of the murders. He was put in touch with a detective, Maholland of the state police, who came to his house. He was a nice, interesting guy, Bob DeMore. He was an interesting uh, junk dealer. Came by his house and proceeded to drop five photographs in front of him and said, which guy did you see? Because apparently he said that on the morning of the murders, again, him saying this in the barbershop 14 years later, morning of the murders, he was driving in his truck, truck down the road to make a delivery, and he saw a guy look at him, and as he slowed to have a look at him, the guy ducked into the woods. He doesn't say anything about it at the time, but when the police... 13 years later, dropped the photos in front of him. Uh, he picks a guy out within three seconds, according to what the state police guy said that I interviewed, and, and the person was Mark Thomas. Mm. So, um, again, it, it goes back, to, it, it comes back to, to Mark again. Uh, so it's just interesting, but, you know, the, the, the police officer with whom I spoke wasn't really... Uh, cranked up with that information. He just, you know, how did this guy, you know, uh, 13 years later pick the guy? He sort of felt it was luck that, it, that he picked out Mark, but, you know, it, it certainly lends itself to the conclusion that, that, that 
I've always felt that that Mark may know something. I'm far, far, far less convinced that he that he did this. So, but did he so is he still alive? He is, as far as I know. Um, he's uh, somewhere, I believe, in Pennsylvania. But even if I knew where he lived, obviously I wouldn't, wouldn't divulge that. But he is, as far as I know. But as I said, I I've just never been a hundred percent persuaded that he could do something like this. Yeah, it doesn't quite that. fit. I agree with you. No. Uh, well, even you know, if it's the first time, it doesn't fit anyway. Uh, but if it's if it was the first time, that means it's not going to be a last. Yeah, but I mean, if you're going to, if you're going to, it's difficult for us to to try to get into the mindset. Short of studying these people for a living, of you, it, it's impossible for us to comprehend really, other than afar, how someone does something like this. But that being said, they're typically leading up to an act like this. Again, you know, a person tends to have certain peculiar behavior. Characteristics, proclivities, etc. Violence, sexual, um, you know, a bad history with women, um, you know, rape, things along those lines, and he just didn't have any of that. So, right. uh, and, and, he and, had and fight. once you start, you don't stop. You know, uh, unless you're restrained somehow. I've always uh, felt that whoever did this, and it may not mount to much, it really doesn't as far as solving it, though, but I've always felt that the time of the day this occurred suggested whoever did this had been up all night partying in Bay Sh at Bay Shores or one of the bars as, as some sort of, you know, animosity, anger toward women, and, and obviously had, it was seriously pathological, um, and, and something, I, I think it was, I think the sleeplessness, again, this is just a theory, the sleeplessness combined with these homicidal tendencies manifested themselves into the act itself. I don't think this would have occurred um, had it not been for those, sadly, perfect set of circumstances with the bars letting out all night, you know, going to the diner, and you, know, you, you tend to form a picture of who this person would be if it wasn't one of these other guys, it just sort of... Maybe a you know a disgruntled um, man or, or a, a Vietnam vet with PTSD who happened to be drinking all night and doing drugs. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wait, but I'm still I still keep coming back to the car at the side of the road and their bodies elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, you know, 200 feet away in the woods or whatever. I want to know why the car stopped, who was driving, why they left the car, why there's one person, the other lady takes her purse. It's just some drifter falling out of the sky and killing him just does not compute. I agree with you. I agree with you. I mean, people may do what appear to be irrational things, but it's not irrational to them. Yeah, and it was just, it was done in such a methodical way that it would suggest that the person had done this before. Or they were realizing a fantasy, taking a fantasy and making it a reality. In the case of Robert Lee Yates, the first people he killed was as a couple out having a picnic. He right. murders them both, but he poses their bodies in a semi-sexual way, partially clothes on top of one another, and then put old tires and tarps on top of the bodies, which were found. Now, he never killed anybody before, as far as we know, and he didn't do it the way he would do it later, it was he revised his methodologies, but 
and he never got well-known, high-profile, respected couples having a picnic as his victims. He'd uh, take street walkers. Right. You know, uh, which is another argument for making sex work legal, unionized, and protected. Yeah. <laughs> you know, save some lives here, yeah. you know. Uh, but uh, you can't, like I say, reverse engineer. You know, later on, he only used a 22, so he, whoever did it, uh, it wasn't him because he used a 357. Well, no, the first time he used a 357 and learned not to. Uh, and it, it just because it's so methodical doesn't mean that he's done it before. It means that he's thought about it and doesn't want to get caught. Yeah. And what's also interesting is you say, well, it was a, how do we know it's a serial killer? Well, we know whether other murders at the time that happened. Well, the next year in 1970 in Wildwood, New Jersey, um, about 20 miles south of Ocean City, a woman was found underneath the boardwalk in a Hunt's Pier. It's a very popular amusement ride place, and she had sand stuffed into her mouth that had been apparently strangled with a cord, an electric cord, and I found out from one of the detectives the holdback in that case was that a bow had been tied around her private area. So that's certainly another instance nearby um, in the proximity where you would think, hmm, maybe the same person did that, but that's a cold case to this day as well, was the murder of Carol Hill in 1970, and, and they were never able to find out who did that either. Hmm. I always feel sorry for these people, their families. It's yeah. so tragic. You know, and the only thing that's closure when they find the person who did it, the person confesses, or the person goes to prison or whatever. Uh, uh, not, there isn't really closure. Not closure no. with a loved one to die. And there's there not, it's, not, it's not comparable in any way, shape, or form to the horror these people feel, but I've often felt it's been interesting to explore, and I, I recognize this not by design, but just by chance after talking to, to Bundy's aunt. You know, you could feel. The, the compassion in her voice to just resonate how how badly she felt for the families of these girls and the people that were, you know, that that Ted had killed. Um, you know, she she and you know, she seemed sincere. She said, "Look, you know, we just don't. We can, I can't imagine what they've gone through. It's just terrible what he did." Um, but you know, for for the families of people related to someone, you know, the, the, the picture of a serial killer in your mind, based upon what you see on the television. I'm, I'm thinking now of um, the guy who traveled around with Otis Tool and, and murdered all these people. There was a documentary about him um, recently. You know, just mm -hmm. blowing up in utter depraved circumstances. I don't know if you know what's the guy's name. He's. Uh, uh, Henry Lee Lucas. So Henry Lee Lucas is a tr cross country serial killer, and he grew up in a like it was West Virginia or somewhere. And oh, his mother sexually abused him, and the, the father had both legs cut off, run over by a train. Oh my God! Yeah, a tar paper shack, and like, well, look, you sort of see where that came from, but not in the case of Bundy. You know, as I said, he was not abused, and that's by by Samuel Cowell. Um, so that's not the case. Well, there's lots of, I mean, there's all sorts of misconceptions about what makes people do certain things. One of the most common ones is, oh, all sex workers, all prostitutes were raped and belittled and abused as children. No, it turns out that's a bunch of crap. Uh, sometimes it's just a, a wise personal career choice based on talent and available position. 
position, no pun intended. Uh, I think we're just about out of time by looking at my watch. Uh, Mark C.G. Boyer has been awfully quiet. Either he fell asleep or he left town. Mm, I left town. Oh, he left town. <laughs> You're calling it. Do you have any, uh, are we getting close to the end here? I believe so. I'm waiting for Matt to come out and kick us off. Oh, well, because the Matt's uh, probably somewhere uh, doing something exciting, like <laughs> having a coronavirus virus. Uh, possibly, but I think he's uh, show prep for what's up next. Well, let's uh, do a quick hype for the book. Tell us, how do we buy it? Okay, it's uh, The Garden State Parkway Murders, a cold case mystery published by Wild Blue Press. You can go to the Wild Blue Press website, look on my page there, or you can just go to Amazon. It's available print, paper, and now I believe audio. Uh, my website is www.christianbarthauthor.com. If you go there in the media tab, you'll find all the links to the podcast like yours and things of those. you also find the Amazon link there where you can buy. You can buy, again, either paper or, or uh, paperback or Kindle format. So um, please buy it and generate interest in this case, and let's see if we can't get some justice for Susan. Now, what are you doing next? What's your next book? You gotta do uh, we're, we're contemplating some friends of mine and I that I've met to a mutual friend already have an established podcast, and they would like to do a podcast based upon this, which I think is a fast Fascinating idea. There are a couple of other murders that I'm that I'm contemplating doing as well. Well, there was a true crime writer in France who was following a case, and he finally caught the guy. It was him. Yeah, I'm gonna knock on my door pretty soon here. <laughs> well, you go knock on the door. We'll go knock on Matt Allen's forehead, and uh, okay. <laughs> we'll catch you next time around. Thank okay. you so much for being on the show. Thanks, guys. Thanks a lot. lot Thanks for joining people. us. Hey, Burl. Okay. Uh, yeah. What's next? What's next? <laughs> Magic Matt Allen, the Demons of Decadence.